0: Hello and welcome to Rising with the Tide. This episode is part of a mini-series of episodes from our older podcast, the Lancaster University Extinction Rebellion podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to episode four of the LUXR podcast. My name is Skander Mana, and I've got with me James Walls and Dr. Alexander Dunlap, who's a postdoctoral research fellow um, at the Centre of Development and Environment at the University of Oslo. Hi Alexander, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. How are you? It's sunny day up here in Oslo.
1: Yeah, in the UK as well. It's quite rare, but we've got it for once. So, I want to start by asking you what exactly do you research in in uh in, in general? What how would you sort of summarize the past years that you've done in in terms of research?
2: Yeah, I guess I would summarize as I I look at natural resource extraction in in a general sense. I mm. uh I did my doctoral field work looking at wind energy development in Southwest Mexico, where I lived with different indigenous groups who were, were taking up a struggle for autonomy and picking up their machetes and shotguns to kind of hold out wind companies and also the local politicians collaborating with them. And then I, that kind of led me to looking at kind of the, some of the materials behind wind turbine development. And so this led me to looking at uh, copper mining in Peru, but I am before that, Coal mining with my friend Andrea Brock, who has done lovely work working at the Hombok and we collaborated on some stuff a while back.
1: Yeah, I'm, uh, speaking of Andrea Brock, I'm, I'm hoping to to have her come on the podcast as well um, in, in the coming weeks or something.
2: You should. She's yeah. lovely. She's great. <laughs> She'll have a lot of good day. And, uh, and this has also led me to recently looking at energy infrastructure and people resisting it in, in southern France, where they're also kind of trying to protect farmland and stop land grabbing and kind of different bureaucratic processes and this uh, this also I've also been working back in Mexico and and working with looking at the new wind parks being formed there by transnational companies and all the trials tribulations and kind of really sad stuff that go, goes along with it right right yeah
1: there's um I, I guess we can we can just get right into it and then start with one of those big projects we've worked on which is a a um, which is the idea of renewable energies, land grabbing, corruption, et cetera, all tied around in uh, in Mexico. Is that right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, through kind of different networks and friends, I was put in touch with some, I I mean, I guess it goes earlier. I, I was working, James Fairhead was one of my professors and he'd recently published an article on green grabbing. And I think even before that, I decided that the whole green thing is a bit fishy and that i was probably this would probably be a good thing to kind of look into and to see what's really going on and then so i actually had a professor who was looking at green grabbing and published something that i thought was surprisingly interesting and critical for for an academic article and uh and so yeah and i had i'd spent some time in oaxaca 10 years before and i knew about the wind energy projects and so long story short with or actually maybe long story not so short <laughs> i uh I ended up uh, with different contacts and friends. I I had people who were kind of working in solidarity and doing things down in that area in the isthmus of Tehuantepec region of Oaxaca, Mexico had been subject to kind of a big wind rush. It was probably because of the kind of the geographic location of it being one of the narrowest peninsulas between the Gulf of Mexico and the Pacific Ocean and the mountains, it became an extremely desirable, has very strong winds and is a very desirable place. And after studies came out to make the wind legible and had documented that it has amazing wind resources, transnational companies just flooded the area. And so it was a big issue and it started becoming a, I mean, the development really started in 2004 and then it became a uh, kind of a hot topic in 2007, 2006, seven, eight. but then it became a serious kind of issue in terms of people really taking an active stance and kind of militant stance and resistance. And a lot of this was, really when they started spreading the construction of wind turbines towards the, the Laguna Superior and Inferior and the, the Pacific Ocean. And that's when a lot of the farmers and fishermen in these areas, mostly Zapotec and Akut, really began organizing and unifying even past old historical divisions to really to really push up against the wind companies and also the local politicians. And, and it, it united kind of diverse political factions who had been historically at odds with each other in the 70s and the 80s and so yeah I, I ended up really very quickly becoming in the middle of some of these conflicts and I knew that when energy was going to be I knew that there was some stuff going on you, you know kind of typical ecological distribution conflict stuff or maybe a less <laughs> jargony way to say it is that I knew there was issues I knew people were fighting I knew that you know when energy wasn't perfect but I, I don't when I went into this I certainly did not have the same critical perspective I have now. But no, I, I lived in, uh, I went in and because of some friends and people, they, I ended up living in probably one of the more militant and, and violent villages in the area. And more or less, you know, began participant observation in with the policia comunitaria who had, I mean, ultimately what happened, there was a kind of a sensitive ecological area that took some coastal ecologists, and biologists will say took 10,000 years to form in the bar de Santa Teresa the Santa Teresa sandbar, and they wanted to build the Merenia Rebunables project, wanted to build a hundred and, oh, I don't even remember, 103 wind turbines on this. Right, okay. And so this village eventually, because they weren't consulted, because they started seeing fish dying, because they had no idea the real scale of what was going on, and then there was a lot of land control and control on when and how they could access the sea, and they were never consulted and just certain politicians got mm-hmm. money. I mean, a lot of this is all very cliche in terms of how environmental conflicts kind of kick off, but yeah. they more or less began mobilizing and went and started making barricades. And I, I, I believe someone got arrested and it, there's a whole conflict in the journal Political Ecology. I've got an article and a book about this, but it's, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, they began fighting. They've started, <laughs> they might have torched a truck or two of the... Of the wing companies and pushed them out and managed to fight off 500 500 police began a process of autonomy and taking over the town hall and pushing out the politicians and eventually did and peacefully got the police car the ambulance and the dump truck and the city hall and then they formed their own kind of local police force to kind of uphold kind of local customs made up of volunteer fisher yeah. and fisher and farmers and
1: so, so is this just, just sorry, just for, for context, um, is this yeah. a an area of the country that, that is overseen by the federal government? Yes.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's federal state there and there's local, but uh, Oaxaca is a state in Mexico that is historically always <laughs> has been hard to kind of have a full grasp on and Mexico right. kind of uses it kind Of a decentralized kind of corporate strategy to try to distribute power to kind of keep everything together, but mm-hmm.
1: um, I mean, just because um, you know, it, it sounds like everything kind of descended into mayhem a little bit quickly. Um, did, did the, the fishermen and the, the farmer and stuff, did they, did the people who were fighting back against this, um, try sort of um? More peaceful, like ways to to go against it, and were then rejected, or did they did they find did they find that their earlier efforts were kind of just ignored at, at the government level? Is that why they felt that they had to create their own kind of police force?
2: Well, yeah, I mean the papers were already signed. People weren't consulted. Some people were even actually helping to do survey work. People in the resistance were even helping to do survey work, and as they tried to convince me, and I believe them for the most part that they didn't really know what it was about. And I've even talked to the surveyors and people and how they were lied and information was kind of kept from them. Mm-hmm. But people knew something was coming at a certain point. And then when they started seeing the machinery roll in, they were like, oh, my God, we have to do something about this. So it kind of, you know, it's, it's harder to contest these things once the ball starts moving and if you don't yeah. know about it. And so yeah. it, this is kind of what they had to do.
0: You said um, you said briefly how the um, those... Um sort of uh, kind of uh, pollutant effects from this and kind of they were barred from going into the water. What, what were the main um, problems for the people living there locally uh, for, uh, because of this project? And um, why, why, you know, why, why was there a motive to you know, kind of fight this entire thing?
2: Uh, so, I mean, so it's a semi subsistence community. So they derive their livelihood. So materially speaking or by UN statistics standards, it's an extremely poor area. However, in terms of actually their quality of food, in terms of fish, mangoes, watermelon, and different things like this, there's, there's still a, uh, a smallholder culture there of actually food and fishing that makes it so they have a very high quality of actually what they're eating. And, so, and this is where a lot of the local economy is on. This is how people feed their families. And so this was seen to be in threat. I mean, in terms of order of importance, it was seeing when they were starting to do construction for a test wind turbine, they saw fish. They saw the fish starting right. to dive. And because remember, it's on a, I mean, this is an interesting project because every kind of wind project is going to be different based on the different geology and the environment where it's being built. And so this was a sandbar. And I even actually recently, in an interview from someone doing the drilling, I got the exact specifics of the deepest foundation, but they were doing foundations as deep as something between 17 meters up to, I believe it was either 39. Or even 49 or 41. I hmm. I don't have the interviews oh, in front of me. Hmm. But people doing the drilling, so they were building insanely deep foundations, which means, and there was rumors when I wrote the book initially, people were saying that actually, they were people were worried that it was going to be 70 meters deep. But I, a couple months ago, was able to get, or I don't know, five months ago, was able to get the numbers that there was foundations between 17 and at least 39 meters deep. And this is from two people who were actually working on the, doing the drilling and i got to hear about actually how information was taken from them and how they were doing rock sampling to actually see for different minerals i mean there's a whole thing i mean a lot of the people down there think that the wind turbines were actually just a way to look for natural gas and different minerals and but this is kind Mm -hmm. of common stuff in terms of people yeah but um so yeah a lot of this so that means you if they're building foundations they're gonna have to take out lots of sand puts in lots of concrete and different rebar and they were even digging that deep there was a serious impact on the fish that was witnessed. And I've had to watch I'd watch people tell me kind of what they saw and just tears come out of their eyes. But I mean that the sea and the impact of the sea is a huge part of it. But it was also about not being consulted. People benefit sharing being non-existent or certain actions. And then on top of that, some people getting paid more than others, but it really wasn't distributed well within the community. And then it was about actually having different authority dictating the times they can go there and having to have ID cards to go out to the when they were starting to do construction,
1: right? And
2: mm. and so there was so this was like a, seen as a huge sign of disrespect and people go fishing at two in the morning based on different cycles and things like this.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so it's kind of just this. Uh, there's a there's a dual dual effect then I guess of of the the non the uh, anti democratic process uh that this underwent and also I guess the environmental aspect which which frankly we never really hear much about. I mean this is something you, you talk a lot about in your other um in your other articles and 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 books that renewable energies are are the poster child kind of, of, of uh of a new world that they there's a dichotomy between good and bad, right? Um and especially with wind energy, but um but I'm really interested just to kind of link from what you said about the foundations to your verso article, um where you explain that a two megawatt um wind turbine requires uh, something around like a thousand metric tons of steel um and and a lot of copper as well um, is does this have a huge impact on the on the land like the does the what i I'd like to just kind of get a grasp of how the foundations for example the steel foundations have an impact on the land itself uh, if you know like about about this um
2: so yeah i mean we can i can give you kind of the i can make links to the extraction yeah and based on that one source there it was a business insider source and so i think maybe it might be slightly less amount of copper Mm -hmm. but it was 3.2 tons according to this one source but whether it's a little more or a little less. And there are some technological improvements, but it's it's still an insane amount. Once the roads are widened and made and kind of habitat cleared, then they have to build a a foundation. And the foundation is gonna depend on the kind of the geography and the hydrology in the area in terms of how deep they have to go. But they're usually somewhere between nine or 13, 13 meters deep on kind of a kind of standard, even though we talked about it can be much deeper. And then they're somewhere between 16 and 22 meters wide in diameter. Right. And then so that whole hole has to be filled with concrete and steel. Mm. And then so once they erect it, they bring in the machinery. So there's a lot of there's a lot of construction going around. So then once they're in operation, they you need oil to kind of lubricate them. And so one of the big issues that I at least in Mexico I came across, and I can't from a lot of people, I witnessed it in water wells, is that they leak oil a small amount systematically and maybe this happens over time if anything i've actually really wanted to talk to an engineer about actually how the oil is leaking this much because it's it's widespread and if you look at wind turbines you're going to see there's going to be a little bit of like darker oily dust like it looks kind of like a a dark dust scattered across kind of the the backs of the the wind turbine but i i hear accounts of that it's like dripping down the side but so yeah they use oil they leak, I mean, Exxon shell, and all them, they're actually trying to produce like really good oil so you can change them out less in, uh, in offshore wind turbines in the sea. But then on top of that, so in these in these cases, so and they also kill lots of birds, and this all depends on the quantity, the placement, different mitigation measures in terms of painting things. And mm-hmm. that you know, you can minimize some of the mass bird deaths. And there's ways to do these, but usually if you're building more than three industrial scale wind turbines, it's going to be, it's going to, it's, they're going to have bigger effects the more you build. And But on top of that, so the oil, what I came across is that they're leaking into the ground. And then so obviously, since this was kind of a historic, as, as an indigenous territory, there was subsistence farming where and livestock. So this was ending up in people's water wells, as I just kind of referred to and also there i had i came with tons of interviews from various different people not just land defenders who were talking about actually how the cows were eating it getting sick and dying they're either dying just getting mm. sick having miscarriages or dying and i really all i can say is that there needs mm. to be further investigation about these things and i can't really draw too many conclusions other than saying like this is something i came across in addition to but more to the ecological impacts is that so this also requires either subterranean power lines or high tension wires. So this means more tree cutting, more digging, also transformers. And then these things are going to span long distances into different grids. There's different kind of voltage of lines. Uh, I feel like I'm forgetting something too. Yeah, but so when when you're raising the roads, as I said before, and digging these things, you're having an impact on the hydrological table, on the water. And so this is going to depend. And so in the case I was living in, the people who are resisting and didn't want to give up their land, wanted to continue being smallholders, And every time in the inner every chance they had, they would just trail off talking about their handmade tortillas and how great the food is. And I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> they took serious pride and care into their food, mm. but the people who resisted, like I'm thinking of a farmer who, and I mean, now a lot of these people, I don't know how to deal with. A lot of them are sick from even being around these things. And I, for reasons I don't know, it's probably related to lots of different kind of factors, but When it was raining and they tried to still do farming around these things, which was something that people fought for, it was resulting in extreme dry in the dry season and extreme flooding. So, it was leaking oil. There's it altered the hydrological table, which then also affected how water was actually draining into the lagoon because when you're putting this, we're talking about hundreds of wind turbines. Even I mean, there's two thousand in the region now. But now the water, the fresh water that would run off into the lagoon, that salt water was a mix. Is now there's increased salinization of the lagoon where people farm from. So now there's like an immense. It's contributing to larger ecological imbalances. And then there's an oil refinery not far away that has there's been concerns about it leaking oil into the area. So it's the big problem is is you know there's the five factors, there's the raw materials, how they're contracting the land, the social, ecological, and and uh, economic impacts of these projects there's what the energy used for and also the decommissioning but it's it's being built on top of existing developments for oil extraction that needs to go into wind turbines but also pipeline i mean it's there's not a transition out of i mean there's not a transition towards just renewable energy even if hydrocarbon industries were designed just to. be dedicated to promoting renewable energy infrastructure, which still in itself is going to be a huge kind of disastrous thing. But right now we're, we're just seeing everything being extracted and developed at once for everywhere. And it's concerning. And there's more nuclear power plants being built. It's, it's a bonanza.
1: All right. So there definitely needs to be more research done into the, the impacts of these so-called clean energies for sure.
2: Yeah. And we need life cycle. We need life cycle assessments that are based in ethnography, we, we, we got to get past the modeling and a lot of these kind of quantitative, these kind of the carbon, these different kind of quantitative measurements and kind of signifiers that aren't taking into account the extent of ecological destruction. And it's it's very convenient to write these things based on numbers and econometrics. They're saying, oh, it's not that bad. We're going to reduce this. But there there's really big gaps and there's a kind of a certain convenient laziness in terms yeah. of yeah. Built, built on a series of kind of scientific abstractions that are not really looking at the seriousness and drawing the connections, which again, as I mentioned, are, is, is going is related towards national security issues in terms of where these minerals are coming from. I mean, I guess there's I guess there's the 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 way I look at it, there's five ways that you, you need to assess when energy development. There's raw material extraction phase, where the different mines, smelting facilities, transportation networks, you know, processing manufacturing then there's you know land contracting and or land grabbing depending on the relationship kind of employed in terms of actually how you're securing and negotiating that land then there's a social ecological and economic impact and then there's what's the energy used for what's this actually powering what's going on behind that yeah. and then there's decommissioning. and so right. kind of what you asked about the the direct kind of ecological impact i mean so i mean the social and ecological are deeply combined so you have you have an influx of different income bracket people coming into certain towns or regions, which is going to have a different effect depending on the rural, what type of rural demographic, but it's still going to be higher income people, especially if there's migrant specialized workers. In this case, you're getting lots of people from Spain, France, Mm -hmm. and and things like this or other parts of Mexico. But so, and so that's going to shape the demographic. That's going to bring different kinds of, (laughs) Lifestyle and habits that are often very uh, Traumatic or difficult for people in these rural areas, which leads to kind of talks about drug use sexual assault and stuff like that again Very common things also with mining. There's I think a lot of good literature on this and I know Stuart Kirsch has talked about this in mining capitalism but um, Yeah, so you go into the area. You've somehow managed to secure the land first thing you got to do is you got to you know scope out the area you're going to have to build roads you're either going to have to build roads or reinforce and and widen existing roads and so this means that you're going mm-hmm. to have to start cutting different animal habitat trees and moving things around like this which also whether you're building new or you're expanding so you can bring in heavy machinery for the existing roads you're going to be compacting raising raising the roads and compacting soil and so when you go in so you're you're moving around animal habitat creating fractures and disruption so you find the site you have to cut down more but then you're going to be digging into the ground and this where the water table is and different kind of local hydrology is going to be really important and also who you know what animals birds people already live in these areas and what type of ambitions and desires do they really have and How much is this really being put on them? Yeah.
0: So wind wind farming really isn't as like a positive thing as many people might um, think, um, (laughs) because it allows these kind of like industries to, you know, continue. It's just a more roundabout way, I suppose.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, look. By all means, if I was to reflect on myself, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, you know, I wanted to. I knew that wind turbines had negative impacts on birds. This was kind of popularized by then, but you know what in our minds really makes us think that this giant metal apparatus these giant robots and they are in terms of their kind of their computational yeah. you know they these are huge infrastructural systems you know like what gave us the idea that this giant thing based on all sorts of metals you know it's actually pretty it's a bit foolish i feel a bit foolish myself in terms of actually how yeah. I kind of walked into that, like how sure. we we so easily. Someone told us it was renewable yeah. energy. I have an article out right now, like really asking, like, "There's such thing as renewable energy if we're going to really take into account life cycle assessments." And
1: yeah, I mean, like I, when I think of of uh, you know before I I read some of your stuff, I, I guess we we all have this naivete about like um, you know we think of a wind turbine. Personally, I just think of it kind of just appearing on the on the landscape, you know just like oh well that's pretty nice all right cool we have free renewable energy and the prices are going down and it's beautiful and it's renewable it's clean uh it got there magically kind of and uh, I guess there's a we're, we you could say in a way we're kind of alienated from from this sort of uh from the production of of energy so much that that we kind of just listen to what we're being told um but but I would just want to make something clear though for um listeners and stuff is that that you do acknowledge throughout your work that um like that while you know renewable energies or fossil fuel plus as you call them uh have issues um they are better than fossil fuels themselves do you not
2: well yeah i mean it's more complicated it's i mean i the the and or dichotomy this doesn't Mm -hmm. really hold that the fossil fuels or hydrocarbon versus renewable energy is is a false dichotomy Right. Because every single aspect of fossil fuel plus or so-called renewable energy systems are completely dependent on hydrocarbon extraction and processes, also coal for metal smelting and different things like this. But I, I want to yeah. stress kind of what you said before, that maybe the real power of wind energy or wind power is actually the way that it invisibilizes violence and supply chains. And that yeah. you're, yeah, it alienates it, but it really invisibilizes a whole lot of other stuff going on behind it in terms of outsourcing, smelting facilities, labor, and different things like that. And, but yeah, as you say, I, I'm an advocate of microscale renewable energy and decentralized or obviously decentralized, but that's not, that can go a lot of different directions. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I was just, I was just curious as to like what you thought um, a, a good, good solution would be. I mean, do do you think these, industries are inherently um, unsustainable uh, because the the industries that um, wind turbines necessarily rely on to be produced um, or or do we have to kind of pursue an entirely different form of um, energy production?
2: I think that anything's possible. I think there's ways that humans could live and use you know small grid or micro scale renewable energy systems and advocate kind of I advocate energy autonomy and people literally taking back their power in terms of using kind of of sustainable degrowth solutions but like really approaching you know fossil fuel plus technologies with a lot of sensitivity and understanding the the kind of severity of life cycle assessment or the, the life cycle of these these infrastructures but we're kind of at a point with exact how we already live or how we already live in cities or how even academic culture is that we are there's there's such a high level of destruction and violence to kind of maintain these lifestyles there's already a very <laughs> a negative acclimation that people are kind of okay with and that there really has to be mm-hmm. a critical look and reconsideration to actually how infrastructure is being built, developed, and how we live with it and how we prioritize our lives and the things that we do and why we even do them and how we even learn these things. But, it's, but no, I, I, de- I do see a positive role for fossil fuel plus technologies. I think there's a lot of possibilities, but I don't see them being exercised. I don't even see them being very discussed about very intelligently in a lot of the kind of environmental space in like the environmental movement spaces or or yeah or even some there's people aren't very critical about what's really going on with these things within kind of climate justice or even some parts of the just transition
1: yeah has, you, has your work been sort of have you found criticism of your work throughout your research or uh, has it been kind of received positively
2: Oh I mean I mean it's been received positively by who reads it and who engages with it. You know, I've had conversations with kind of old school environmental activists from the eighties or or early nineties who've been very upset and they really cling to carbon accounting and they think I'm a bad person, even though I've been in these squatting spaces or in these movements for a very long time or I've known them for some time, but they sometimes these people already have kind of existing issues with things. But yeah, I mean I get it. I I mean there hasn't really been that much engagement. I've been up I made an environmental justice activist very upset when I said that a lot of the solutions that promoting are actually just kind of exporting violence and they're not taking into account a lot of the mineral extraction, the different human rights violations and labor conditions mm. taking place down different supply chains. But yeah, I mean, I mean, people don't really have that much to cling into. I mean, especially political parties and different things like this. They're trying to market it and sell a solution. And they're not really trying to have an honest, I mean, some people for sure are. But I mean, the way it goes, I don't really see, I mean, I don't see much in environmental policy really taking climate catastrophe or widespread kind of ecological crisis very seriously in terms of taking practical steps to you know, revitalize environmental education and learn to kind of strengthen environments or how to grow food or even encourage kind of smallholder agriculture and people, you know, there needs to be a much more serious engagement with yeah. how we relate with our environments.
1: Yeah, I think your, your, your idea of extractivism, to, to come back to the sort of um, the cost, I guess, of a, of a something like a wind turbine, um, because obviously our, our listeners uh, will probably not have read um, your academic articles by the time they, they listen to this, but... Um, a single two megawatt wind turbine, you say, takes about uh, this is I guess approximations one hundred and fifty metric tons of steel for the reinforced concrete foundations, two hundred and fifty metric tons of steel for the rotor hub and the cells, five hundred for the tower, and about three point six tons of copper per megawatt. Um, Be said that's that's uh, that has potentially changed since then. But um, what I'm really interested in as well is that. You mentioned something that I, I personally wasn't really aware of: is that industrial steel production is impossible without burning coal. Um, coal is a vital ingredient in the process. I think a lot of people might not know that. I mean, I, I think, um, I think it's it's an information that's that's not very uh, common, and, and I feel like maybe this is kind of part of the the issue that we talked about with this uh, invisibilization of it. Um, so I I I don't know I I don't even know where I thought personally um, the metal kind of came from or whatever, but I guess I never really thought they would have that much of an impact. Um, we always see it as sort of minimizing the impact rather than than uh, than than having such a huge impact on the environment. Um, and you also talk about rare earth minerals like dysprosium, uh, terbium uh, that come from places like Inner Mongolia, China, and uh, and I guess. This all has to do with a sort of deeper philosophy of extractivism, of of taking, continuously taking from the earth um, a resource that is going to run out at some point, I guess.
2: Yeah, totally. And I, I mean, some of those numbers are even worse. There's been a number of World Bank reports that have been published that are, I mean, one of the more recent 2019 World Bank reports is, is going so far to... <laughs> Is going so far to say that low carbon technologies, you know, quote, low carbon technologies, particularly solar photovoltaics, wind, and geothermal, are more mineral intensive relative to fossil fuel technologies. And okay. that's right. like a 2019 World Bank report. So it's I mean, yeah, it's it's really serious in terms of I mean it's it's a huge it's a huge blind spot, but some of the numbers change. There's technological shifts. So but yeah, a lot saying in terms of extraction, production, and energy, it's it's even worse than a lot of those numbers from that twenty eighteen article that was relying on stuff mm-hmm.
0: from
2: twenty fifteen. But yeah, I mean that's the thing is that you haven't you know when you talk about when energy development, you're talking about bauxite mines, you're talking about copper mines, you're talking about rare earth mineral mines, you you know you're talking about you know iron ore mines, you're talking about the smelting facility. There's so there you have to kind of if you wanted to do a kind of an impact assessment or a social acceptance of a wind turbine mm-hmm. project my new arguments that you actually need to do <laughs> a social acceptance kind of down the entire chain into all right. these different mining and manufacturing sites if you want to be honest about it yeah yeah but yeah, yeah. but i think also to kind of get to the point that you're saying is on a same article or a book chapter that was a revision of that, of that article that will probably come out in some book in late summer or fall, all about energy, democracy, and acceptance, is that is really asking the question, you know, what is renewable energy? Is there such a thing? And what would that look like? And if we kind of want to get, you know, radically think about this and get serious, this means that we actually need to be putting whatever energy we're using, we need to create a reciprocal relationship where we have to be energy we use needs to go back into our environments and what gives us life and currently a lot of the energy use is just going into infrastructure and televisions electronics that are are serving as kind of a giant black holes of kind of absorbing energy for our entertainment and maybe for our own emotional and psychosocial black holes that we've kind of taken on from living in (laughs) capitalist or market societies where our relationships have been fragmented or you know there's a lot of different explanations but i think the the psychologists Alexander Bruce or Bruce Alexander had a really nice book about the globalization of addiction that I think is instructive in this, in this regard. But so yeah, what is renewable energy and, you know, how are we actually going to create systems that are, are really renewing energy and actually creating a cycle where we're giving our energy and existence to creating better food, better environments, and also, you know, if we are engaging in small-scale fossil fuel plus technologies or appropriate technologies in general, you know, how are we actually going to remediate and actually truly make up for that kind of damage we're doing in ecosystems, and and hopefully that damage and that destruction from mining or whatever different processes are going on, they should be local so people can see it and people can understand the cost and the energy use and what it means, because I think that there's a lot of better alternative. I think there's so much untapped potential in terms of how people can live better, healthier, more ecologically sound lives that's yeah, just for sure. not even on the table. And that we're just, degrowth is the kind of the area where people are really trying to fight to open this on many different levels and in different mm-hmm.
1: ways. Yeah, I think that's that's something I've noticed with a lot of environmental movements is it's not anymore, for, for some at least, it's not anymore about, about trying to better the environment we live in so that we may live better. It's really about trying to sort of um, adapt our current way of living so that it doesn't have to change um, so that it, it can kind of fit within the equation. But I think personally, I'm seeing more and more that, that it's not possible, that the, the way we live is not sustainable and, and changing the sort of surface level um of it is not going to actually solve anything it's just it, it feels like you know climate procrastination like the the un calls it or or it feels like we're kind of deluding ourselves so that we can keep living these lifestyles um so i i am really interesting interested i mean in the in degrowth especially um and this is something that i think you know in your articles you you say law is uh, is the answer may lie in sort of reducing consumption right of energy in general rather than in finding ways of of, uh, of having cleaner energy. Um, I want to maybe get right into sort of one of the more precise uh, projects you've worked on, which is the a
0: mine in Peru. Is that right?
2: Yeah, the Tia Maria mine in, in the Baye de Tambo.
0: Yeah, because what what really interests me about um, this article is um, it kind of made, made me start thinking, I was like, well, like, how, how do you actually? Um, fight this um, industry uh, not just like seeking solutions because as you said environmental policy is not um actually being put through um it's like you ha- how how can you um you know get the political will or the political organisation to actually push these things through um and uh, so uh, with, with the uh, copper mine in peru um it's the the the, the um Population was kind of being exploited either either through like very hard coercive means or more um, Diplomatic um, soft kind of gift (laughs) giving um, Means and I I was just wondering, um, you know, do do you have um, ideas of? How to counter that Um, Maybe it requires more solidarity between the the actual like um, rebels and the general populace is that maybe what's lacking, or uh, what, what? What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's even to go back before. I mean, it's an old story. I mean, there's been. I mean, it's not just reducing consumption that's big, but it's also really critically looking at productive cycles and like what type of work is being done and what type of facilities, in general, for the kind of the first part. And then in terms of, res- I mean, people have been trying to resist this. <laughs> some call it the mega machine capitalism techno-industrial system or what have you or coloniality the clone there's many ways to kind of refer to kind of the industrial system but people have been trying to fight and stop this for centuries in terms of what's going on so there's there's a real concerted effort to continue this kind of level of production or this kind of definition of progress to kind of make these things and in terms of resisting and stopping extractive projects it requires everything you know everything's on the table it's and it, may, it gets a lot more complicated and ugly when they you know, a lot of politicians and different kind of groups trying to rise up the ranks. They're, they're trying to kind of utilize this kind of power to stop these projects to kind of build their own political platform. And they're trying to build their careers on different kind of political movements. But so I, I see actually politics, like formal politics is being a, as a, the way that politics big P is kind of articulated in the state in and of itself is a bit of a structural problem in terms of, you know, people selling out different movements and people flipping and taking different money. But yes, people need that. There needs to be lawyers. There needs to be people to actually really try to make space and to, and to help people who are in struggle, different autonomous land defenders or, and different, you know, really it's like, how are the different kind of, how are people in the cities? How are different people with these same concerns? How are they linking up and relating their own lives to these struggles and taking an active part in stopping them? And this can, Take so many different forms because there's a there's a very clear common enemy in terms of the processes being taken place,
1: yeah.
2: and it's just about people beginning and under situating their own lives within these troubles. You might not be from these different areas where there's mines, but if you want to, if you, it's these different processes are going to affect people in different ways, and some and a lot of times people benefit from them indirectly. But uh, I guess when it comes down to any political conversation it really comes down to what what you think you need if you really think you need computers if you really think you need a certain type of job like that's going to completely condition your politics and how you relate to different struggles yeah and it's i think it's really to really cut through a lot of bullshit i guess for lack of a better word or just to (laughs) get through the get through the fat or the fluff is to if you're ever working with people is to is to really see like so what do you really like what's this about like what do you envision like look, I am surrounded and dealing in front of a computer. I don't even like computers. I don't need these things in my life. Like, I don't need this type of work. I, obviously, I like writing. I like to do these things. It's, there's a lot of nice things about what I do, but in the scheme of things, like, this isn't really what matters. And it's about really finding what matters and what you need and what, I mean, I would say that society, the state, or whatever these big signifiers people really have to come to terms and be like, all right, what really matters? Like, what do we really wanna have life be? How do we really wanna organize? And like, what matters? What do we really wanna organize and live with? And that's gonna be the basis of any type of political mobilization and or people's politics in terms of how they do things. And I guess the point of me saying this is that when we're talking about people fighting different copper mine projects in Peru or wind energy in Mexico or, or wherever is that there's always there's always these, there's always going to be these projects, there's these problems, or hopefully there won't always be these things. But I think it's important for people to ask themselves, you know, this isn't about doing solidarity for someone else's cause. This is about placing yourself within these conflicts wherever you are. And maybe not these specific ones, but you got to, you got to see who you are and how do you relate to these things and how you want to carry yourself amongst these things. It seems a bit abstract, but it's not about, you shouldn't be you should be doing solidarity for other people, but engaging these things and understanding where you stand within these conflicts is these, these things aren't separate. They're not in a vacuum.
1: Yeah. It's like we were, we were talking with Ben uh, the other day, Ben, Benjamin Neymark um, on our other episode. And, you know, one of the, one of the sentiments that came out was that every action is a political action in a sense um, that everything we do is tied up in a sort of web of influences and, and, and effects and and causes and like, for example, you know, the mic that I'm talking through right now has probably been been made with components uh, from such minds, you know, but um, are they necessary? Probably not. Um, Can we make a society that where everyone is happy and whose well-being is is protected and, and respected without it? Yeah, probably. But for some reason, we still cling to these things. And why do you think that is?
2: Uh, I mean, oh yeah, I mean, a lot of it's. This is all we know. This is all a lot of people know. You know, there's a high level of trust in government. There's a, there's structures in place. You, I mean, you th-
1: do you think? That, I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like personally. All I'm speaking from I a mean, Norwegian context. Right, no, yeah. I do not. I
2: do not think. <laughs> I do not think there's a high level of trust in government. But at the same time, when a lot of people say that they don't, I mean, when the policy comes out and there's different regulations that tell the population to say jump, people might protest or whatever, but for the most part, people conform. And I mean, that's, that's yeah, kind no, of the sad, that's the sad, what was it? It was, it, was, <laughs> it was Henry Kissinger. He said, power is the ultimate aphrodisiac. And that's, I think that's the scariest thing about all this is actually how people conform to different power regulations. And that's is... So I, I do see a lot of complicity in that. And it, the way it works is just, uh, you know, people are, there's a lot of ways you can look at it, you know? Mm-hmm. But people are trying to hold, I mean, it gets more difficult when you have kids and you want to hold <laughs> yeah. on to a job or you want to fit into the system or different things like this. And there's a lot of, there's control mechanisms the entire way <laughs> through your entire life mm-hmm. to try to to be kind of, To still be playing at the casino the capitalist casino or just the the social casino that's been constructed around us you have entire institute you know the whole process of schooling the family unit even in terms of how it's constructed and the way that parents are enforcing certain rules and things on their kids and and imbuing them with certain values because the pressures they're under and how they're trying to survive and what they think is cool depending on your different class gender racial background and then you go to schools that are putting out that message and you've got the police, you've got the way that even infrastructure is designed for cities and where's green space? What are you allowed to do? The experience yeah. that's deprived from you. There's you know, there's a lot going against people being able to be themselves and to think for themselves and to feel confidently in who they are, what they think and how they want to move with or against these things. Do you,
0: do you think in these, um these more materially advanced states um where where these kind of companies are sometimes based um and therefore the states can have um you know political control over them do you think it it it, it's it could be a major problem that the population is just kind of ignorant about how these things work and perhaps um that could be a counter process if you know if the population generally knew about it they may not stand for it and you know um that it, it, it could uh, encourage more international projects against uh, these industries?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know. How much capacity do people even have to care at this point? You know, I mean, I think a lot, one of the big tricks within keeping this machine going is that people become numb. They're under stress. They need to, I know, how, it's difficult to care about a lot of things when <laughs> you've got, got more immediate problems. I guess something that the Jules Lejeune movement where they were, so they begin by fighting kind of neoliberal environmental taxes and re- revolting against the kind of the raising gas tax. And, you know, a lot of it, more traditional ecologists kind of critique them, but they said the end of the month and the end of the world is, you know, is the same. I think one of their slogans was like this mm. where it's obviously, I, I think a lot of people would consider themselves environmentalists. A lot of people care about animals. A lot of people don't want robots and technological systems to take over and completely de skill and govern the world we live in. I think there's a lot of room for, I don't I don't think people really want a lot of what's going on, but on the flip side, they're busy. They're act, a lot of this stuff is actually really enchanting in terms of technology, streaming, mm-hmm. junk food or different types of foods that travel. I mean, there's a lot of, the reason why capitalism for me is able to kind of exist the way it does is that not only does it make you dependent on it, but it also makes you addicted to it and desire it in a lot of ways, in addition to blinding you from a lot of the harsher realities that you might not be experiencing directly.
0: Yeah. So you think, you think the knowledge of what's happening isn't enough. It requires like a major cultural shift in order to properly care about these things.
2: No, I think it just requires experience. I think it requires, which could enough people having experience with feeling or caring or having other kind of ways to relating to the world could lead to larger sh- larger kind of paradigm shifts, which people have been talking about forever. They've yet to come, but it's, uh, and that's not, that's not a stab at you. I've just been hearing these things for, for, you know, everyone's been hoping for some grand horizon tomorrow. I mean, it's really, it's very religious. It's very, you know, waiting for, for the rapture, the revolution or these things, but it's, it's, it has to happen now. We have to really look at our relationships and kind of how it's going. And by all means being playing being an academic is definitely the least healthy thing you could be doing for your life. <laughs> Even if it's cool, you get to have fun conversations. It's addictive. There's really cool things about it, and especially in the in the class tiers and systems of what you have to do for work. And I've had every type of I've had a pretty a lot. I've been I've had a lot of jobs, and I, in some ways I miss them because I didn't have to go to bed thinking about all the twenty million things in my head. But it's yeah. but no, but to get back to the point is that I think you know, it's experience. I used to say that it's like, not until you watch the police beat, it's not until you watch the cops beat someone for no reason near you, or you watch a family member get some type of like rare cancer or some type of disease from some type of environmental or mm-hmm. thing like this, not until these things happen to you, do you even begin to question the assembly line that you're on? And it's, yeah.
1: there's an idea of like, you can't know without knowing sort of thing. Like you can, you can always be told that something is happening. But unless you experience it for yourself, um, it, it, it's really difficult to, to truly comprehend uh, something, I think.
0: I'm just trying to think of actual good institutions that could counter this. Um, may, maybe like the European Union's um, Solidarity Corps projects, which you know, uh, funds and sends people to you know, all, all different places in the world, pe- uh, places which are you know, experiencing uh, poverty and economic stress you think things like that you know if, if we could put more money into that um just getting people around just seeing how you know bad things can be do you think that could be a really positive thing um for countering this industry
2: uh no not at all i mean maybe it could have some type of kind of superficial or i mean it could <laughs> To grade what type of effect it will have on someone is kind of impossible in a lot of ways but what i would say is that it no i mean that's still kind of like what's going to separate that from tourism? You know, what's going to separate this from Mm -hmm. just going and looking at horror and obviously these things can help. But I think really the way that it has to happen is that it has to come from within people to actually want to, I mean, it it can't be about looking at someone else's circumstances and how much worse they are than yours. I mean, it's going to be dancing a fine line with the white man savior complex in terms of spreading development to areas that are, are less enlightened and don't have it as good as you and I think it's important for people to look at actually their own prisons and their own kind of things they're hung up on and the, the things that are very immediately there and how they're tied up with other people's and processes in different places and there's no doubt that there's horrible stuff going on and development could really be and is in some instances really useful and helpful and is engaging up and bottom up and participatory ways of helping people create the realities that they want, even though sometimes that is just integrating energy intensive kind of computational systems and different things like that. But that's, that's them, you know, but I think people have to, they have to get their experiences by making their experiences and and going off the track where I guess my, the reason why I say it like this is that when I hear of some program for some students or for some people to go on some program, of course, it will have some type of benefit and they'll get to look at the world differently. But is that just a one-off thing? Is that just this one kind of experience they're gonna have and they're gonna come back and be like, oh, it was horrible, because they don't even really know or can relate to that context. Be like, we have to do this, and, you know, how are people gonna relate to these, these kind of different interactions? And yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think you see what I'm saying in terms of a sensitive process.
1: For sure, for sure. Um, the the reason why I, I was kind of uh, pushing to go back to the the mine was that I think it's a very tangible sort of example that um, listeners can kind of learn a lot from. Um, so just the, to contextualize it, this was the Tia uh, Maria project, right? Yeah. yeah. So Tia Maria was a copper mine in Peru in the Tambo Valley. Is that right?
2: Yeah, the Baye de Tambo in the in the southwest of Peru
1: right and um so so can you can you explain kind of uh, contextualize before we we get into the kind of questions about this um what was so yeah. what was so bad about it in, in a sense why did this kind of make the the news for you at least
2: well the, i mean it was a conflict going on the conflict was triggered in 2009 i locate the conflict being at a consultation or a yeah, a consultation where the mining companies switched how they were gonna get the water and it erupted into a riot. And right. people were already distressedful and then it just it went too far. Um but so it's an agricultural valley in southwest Peru. A good part of that country is actually <laughs> is concessioned off to Mexican mining companies. And this one also that's based okay. by Group of Mexico. And but it the whole area is is very deserty. So it's in a valley, so it's below, but Actually, above it, towards Arequipa is is a is an air force base that actually has the conditions most similar to Mars, where they actually do Whoa. different rover tests and things like that. But
1: so All in right. this
2: area, very deserty and desolate. But between but between a lot of this kind of desolate, there's these valleys that are are lush with green, with rivers, and some have already been destroyed by other kind of mines or smelting facilities not far from there. But this one. Is is very nice, and it's one of the key agricultural belts for Peru. There's different kind of trade policy, and especially cheap potatoes coming from. Uh, there's different kind of trade policy and cheap potatoes coming from Bolivia and different places. That is, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on smallholder agriculture or even medium size, really trying to get cheaper kind of agricultural products from other countries who have liberalized their economy and to do these things like that. So there's that in the background. But ultimately, they, there's a, an immense amount. There's a lot of copper resources, but there's also other metals, silver. There's not just copper. There can be other things.
1: Right. So we've got a lot of agriculture. We've got some some sort of state assets as well, and and a lot of uh, of minerals. Um, but what what really made this sort of different to you, at least, um, what made this different to other copper mines around the world? Is there is there something? What what was so special about the the water? The change in the water?
2: Oh, I mean. I wouldn't say that there's anything. I mean, maybe the most special characteristic is that people have systematically and militantly fought this project since 2009 to this day Mm -hmm. in the face of repeated military police police that look like military and then state of emergency kind of invasion with multiple times of two or 3000 police kind of invading and that people have continued and held two to 3000 police. Yeah, two times, 2011 and 2015, and then in 2015 oh. they declared a state of emergency, where the military came in. But it's the people were, will stress that it's really the police that are the problem. And there's, I mean, this is when there's there's funerals from people who've been killed. the The police will gas them with tear gas. They're flying around in helicopters, dropping rocks on people and shooting tear gas. Oh. You know, accusations of lighting of like rice patties on fire. You know, cutting off electricity and doing house raids. Like the level of violence not only the direct and like brutal kind of coercive violence, but also the, then the corporate side and the different kind of corporate social responsibility programs or what I call soft counterinsurgency deployments is, is insane. And I've actually been able to detail to an extraordinary degree, the type of stuff being employed through talking with the mining officials and also having some very kind of, I I had some interviews that I fell into by luck that were, Pretty frightening in terms of actually how mining companies conduct counterintelligence operations and disappear people if need be. And right. But so yeah, in this case, but that this is the thing, and this is why I was my there's two reasons why I even went to this area. The first is that I met a friend when I was trying to take a vacation who was like really interested in what I was doing, and he was he told me he was like, "Hey, I my family's from this village, this valley, and we've been." His mining company has been trying to get in for like six years or seven years. I can't remember the exact time. And I think it was six years and it's been brutal. And I would do, I'd love to do anything I can to get more work to kind of focus and look at this. And I said like, yeah, okay. I'm kind of burnt out. I've got too many things, but you know, this is a great invitation. I'd like to help. And so I went and looked at the company and I was like, Oh wow. Very interesting. Grupo Mexico is the main company that owns it. And then when I looked, I said, oh, my God, they own a wind energy project in the area where I worked previously in Mexico. Oh, wow. So right. when I worked in Mexico, there's two mining companies that own three wind parks that have between 30 and 37 wind turbines per park. Right. And Benolas has two and Grupo Mexico has one. And so I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. Not only are they having a kind of a green kind of wind turbine strategy, but they're also got copper mines and other type of mines in southern Peru and you need a lot of copper to actually make wind turbines. So this would be a very interesting connection to see, you know, what actually goes in to make a wind turbine, what type of political dynamics. I mean, in fairness, this is a a developed and well-known kind of conflict that's kind of arisen out of this. But I mean, when we talk about whether we hear about conflicts or not, is how much people are willing to fight and how they're not taking the bait in terms of divisions or money and how much they really care for, their existing livelihoods and lifestyles or the ecology where they live and so yeah i think what really distinguishes is that people <laughs> weren't having it
0: so would you say the the soft counterinsurgency didn't was not really successful
2: well i i mean there's a good report i mean it's one that was, like really was able to help me connect a lot of the dots i don't know a long time ago now like 8 years ago where it was called corporate counterinsurgency by the the RAND Corporation in the United States, which is the leading kind of think tank for national security. And they had something on three environmental conflicts and they advocated the use of kind of corporate social responsibilities, including different kind of green economy stuff like this. But they said, even when it doesn't technically bring the same successes that you want, it's still mitigating the conflict and dividing it. And, And that exact kind of, that came from the Niger Delta with Shell Oil down there in terms of where they're reading. It was out of the three, which was like, Three different things but it was really referring to that even where it looked like it really failed there's it's still decentering and fragmenting and, and creating a situation less <laughs> violent and militant yeah. against their their favor so it's so and it, so in a lot of ways no it didn't work but i i've documented how they're actually it's i mean this thing has been going on at least i mean they've been trying to mine there since 2006 and been talking to politicians and trying to move in it's been a kind of an open conflict since 2009 in some capacity. I mean, it's all kind of low-intensity conflict except in moments of police and military invasion. But it's, I mean, this is going on. It's still going on. They're, tr- they're invading right now. And there's tons of mining companies in the context of COVID who are trying to move in. And, and now that there's more kind of emergency yeah, loss. Perfect on, time. Advantage.
0: Um, could could you uh, f- just for the listeners give a, a a brief summary of what soft what your definition of soft counterinsurgency is?
2: So, so when we think of counterinsurgency, people usually think of Iraq or Vietnam or the, these kind of overt and kind of conventional warfare kind of contexts. But counterinsurgency is a more complicated and well developed and in many ways ancient kind of doctrine of actually how to manage populations and. It really became formalized. I mean, the term comes out, it comes from the 1960s in the special warfare school in the United States. They coined the term there when they were trying to create a class on guerrilla warfare and special warfare for Vietnam. But you can locate these tactics and strategies for a very long time. And a lot of the kind of historic military historians take it back to when the French invaded. I mean, they take it back to ancient civilization, really, in a lot of these books. But So counterinsurgency is really about how you can capture the hearts and minds of populations. So this is actually showing people that you actually share the same interests and that resisting them is pointless. So it's really about doing everything you can to colonize someone's subjectivities or their person to actually either believe in your cause or partially believe in the cause or just do just enough to demoralize you so you will stop taking to the streets and rioting and and creating disruptions to, to stop with. What either governments or, in this case, companies are doing, and so the soft—I mean, it's an analytical dichotomy that is very much that the hard and the soft are intimately together. There's no real division in practice, but the soft emphasizes the different programs. I, you can call them civil-military, where you're actually using different amenities, so different kind of benefits. You, I mean, so the the, die, the way to th- the classic way to think about it is with the donkey, the carrot, the stick, yeah, blinders. Yeah. And so you have the blinders so the donkey can't see another reality. You've Mm -hmm. got the carrot in front of where the blinders are on the donkey. And then you got the stick whacking them to kind of keep moving in that direction. And so the soft is the carrot. It's the benefits. It's the concessions. It's the, it's the kind of the reformism or the medical clinic or the technology or the different kind of youth groups or school funding that will actually say, Hey, there's a benefit to this. And in the case of the Tia Maria mine, I mean, this is really about, it's a type of exchange in terms of we want your mineral, we want the water, we want your underground aquifer water or your river water and the minerals in the ground. <laughs> how are you gonna give it to us? <laughs> you know, and <laughs> they tried to give a certain amount, people weren't buying it. Well, I mean, people didn't even want the whole thing in the first place. But so it's about how you can wear people down to get them to kind of mm. get them to be into this. And part of that wearing down is you know buying out the political leaders and stuffing their pockets so they sell out their constituency some of that wearing down is is providing different clinics and nice things and if that's not enough and people keep fighting then the stick comes in with these different kind of police and military invasions or different kind of I mean there's a whole all sorts of horrible kind of scientific I mean violence is there's a science behind behind violence in terms of how to break people and to yeah. make them paranoid and to hurt them and or just shoot them and terrorize them and then if that doesn't work then and there's a there's always a political calculus in terms of how it's managing a lot of it has to do with resources and i mean they're big investments and it's, it's usually a very complicated and complex field in terms of how these things play out
1: uh, in terms of like land just just talking about land ownership and such how did these companies get access to to land that's not theirs, if it, if it's not state land that the state can sell, maybe if it if it is owned by, for example, like a citizen, how, have you seen so sort of in your research how they manage to obtain those lands?
2: Oh yeah, I mean, by so like every land means. Land grabbing, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I argue that land grabbing is based on kind of coercion and deception in terms of how it's taken. And so that means telling you'll pay them a lot of money and they'll sign a contract. And then for whatever reason, they didn't see what was really written on the contract, maybe because they don't even speak that language or because Mm. they only signed it because there's a guy with a gun holding a gun next to the person with it after repeated visits. But no, sometimes it's the state who sell, I mean, so a lot of state constitutions say that the state owns, if they don't own the topsoil, they, they own the mineral resources below it. Right. So they're, they're usually dispossessed right off the bat. Uh, sometimes if people are if there's a strong kind of property regime then they'll try to buy the person off usually they'll come in and make offers that are difficult to to turn down and sometimes they'll be lying and there's the, there's a whole negotiation <laughs> of actually yeah. how they're trying to get the land and so some people who might sell out in the beginning or will, will be, mm. be the leaders of the resistance because they got screwed over and i mean i don't where, where does that
1: copper where for example in this copper mine where does the copper go does it just get sold off on like kind of Without trace, well, this, a little bit on the world markets.
2: Well, let's be clear: there is no copper mine. I mean, there's a concession, but there is no Tia Maria copper miner. If there is, it's it's just started, and it's because they use COVID and different kind of measures to push their way in. So for this mine, it's unknown because it's it's unknown, and I don't. It's unknown because it doesn't exist, and it's also I haven't done the research or have looked at it recently to know right, right. What's going on. And sometimes it's they, it's difficult to find out it's really difficult to find where the raw materials are coming from for, I mean, I'm really interested to find and trace what mines are really connected to when energy development, but this is, it's a national security issue. A lot of this is related to not only the issues in China and how things are coming out of there, but a lot of friends tell me that a lot of this is coming, no one knows if it's from, I mean, but I don't, the distinction between legal and illegal mining is kind of irrelevant it certainly is in terms of how they're processing and smelting these mm. these, different, uh, these metals from different kind of conflict zones all over the world whether mm. they're there's you know there's low intensity conflict zones like the tia maria but there's also more high conflict within like the congo for example where bauxite's yeah. a big and so how these minerals are actually i mean a lot of these energy companies are just outsourcing 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 yeah, to yeah, different, for sure. different services and
1: Yeah, this reminds me a lot of um, Paris, uh, for example. I remember my my dad lives in in Paris. So I go and visit every now and then. And um, he was telling me once that apparently there's this thing called um, Paris La Plage, which is like uh, every year they kind of transform a bit of, I think, under the Eiffel Tower, I'm not sure, somewhere at least, maybe in the Stade de France or something, they transform it into a sort of beach area, right, so that people can have a, a beach inside the city. Um, if that's not uh, too too weird already. Um, the sand apparently come one year, at least one year, the sand was bought from a company that oh, itself nice. got the sand from ISIS um, and, and, and ISIS-controlled lands. So it's like we're, we're so far removed from where our things come from. And I think of the investment policy here at the uni. Um, I mentioned this a lot on the podcast because it's one of the big works that we've done with LUXR is looking at the investment policy the university has because they invest about three million pounds a year and into random things and we kind of wanted to look at where does that money go and you know even i look at how difficult it was for us to see where the money comes from and where the money goes and i can't even imagine how difficult it must be when you take that to like a secretive company in another country that sells its stuff on the global markets because we had trouble looking into investment funds investing in investment funds you know so it's mm-hmm. uh, i feel like this this again this invisibilization kind of and, and we're just externalizing exporting all these things these uh these issues it makes it so difficult to to find out really the true scale and impact of of our actions
2: yeah, it's, it's, it's horrendous. <laughs> it's, really, <laughs> it's really sad.
0: In in one of your papers, you talk about how, um, in, in, uh, soft counterinsurgency that there's, um, sometimes an emphasis on social science and how they'll employ scientists to c- uh, conduct studies to, you know, get information on, you know, how, how to, how to, um, employ useful, um, I don't know, diplomacy with the populace um you, you talk a little a, a bit, a bit about that perhaps
2: oh yeah i mean wow <laughs> y'all ever watch rick and morty <laughs> you know what, i was thinking
1: after you mentioned uh, kissinger i was thinking i should maybe make a bingo for for uh my episodes with like what things are going to be mentioned because i never thought kissinger would be would be quoted on there <laughs> but rick and morty yeah, yeah go for it
2: So, but so you remember the episode when Summer got a job working for the devil in an antique store? that did really bad things. (laughs) Yeah. And Summer found out; it became very clear that she was working for the devil. And her response was clever and witty, and you know, props to the writers. She said, "What job is not horrible? And working like go work at McDonald's or a sweatshop? He's like, this is what's hiring. Mm -hmm. And her point was is that you know, everything." tied up in this economy is doing something nasty and it's tied into something and social scientists wow they have got a legacy (laughs) and a history that has no way shape or form no way shape or form has stopped in what it's it's legacy of facilitating kind of resource control or colonial endeavors new or old neo whatever you want to call it and so yeah i mean and there's ways look they're trying to develop people you know and People do want their clinics, and they're just trying to help to see how they can make the mining company, the mining company's money and development interventions the most persuasive to get people to stop rioting and to, to kind of just make it work. And then mining companies want to use them to measure how effective their their kind of interventions are. And so, yeah, the long story short is that anthropologists, political scientists, geographers, they're deeply intertwined in pacification strategies and providing the knowledge either directly on the payroll or indirectly just through publishing these kind of reports where they're generating knowledge and they don't have a particularly sharp take on what knowledge matters to actually intervene into a population or into a landscape. Mm. So yeah, and it's, and I was talking to a friend who works in Colombia, and she was like, Oh my God, they got Dutch anthropologists, they've got, (laughs) they've got Dutch social scientists too working for the, for the kind of the companies here, but it's not just Dutch, even though that became a reoccurring and kind of funny theme, but it's, and there's things with, I mean, there's the legacy of, of anthropologists is particularly horrible in colonial ventures, also in Vietnam with the Strategic Hamlet Project, the Project Camelot. I mean, Jay, uh, Dave H Price's work on, on this, the history of anthropologists in this, and also in the kind of the human terrain systems, which with about, in the Pat Robertson Intelligence Scholarship Program, PRISM, that was designed to get kind of vets, to get social science degrees, to start doing intelligence work in universities on students and staff in the United States, but then also to go work as social scientists with different platoons in Afghanistan and Iraq. And this was the human terrain that was officially Mm. kind of terminated in 2009. But there's a lot of literature from anthropologists criticizing and going at a lot of this, a lot of this stuff, but there's also in Oaxaca, there's been geographers and the Bowman expeditions, as they called it, who were trying to map and control land and, I mean, a lot of this is on the philosophy of believing in property rights and trying to make spaces that are legible and that they have their their hooks into the different politics and what's going on there. And of course, it's to stop drug trafficking and all these things. And it's not to say those things aren't happening, but they're often overinflated and there's different interests and agendas going on simultaneously from various yeah. actors. It's all a bit kind of wild, but. Yeah, there's a lot of critical reflection that social scientists need to do on themselves for and sure, what, type, for sure. what they're contributing to, and also to, I mean, these things come up. These are big debates within anthropology and in geography. But then they and people write books about it, but then it just goes away and it continues. And mm. I, I think that's kind of what's been happening.
1: Yeah, it hasn't. I, I, I would say that this is a, a topic I haven't really found in common discourse. At least I feel like it hasn't really shown up in in many debates. Um, I. I don't hear, for example, about the cost of the ecological cost of uh, renewable energies, or I I don't hear much about um, the sort of violence, the inherent violence that goes with extractivism. Um, What what I'm wondering now, because we're we're running a little bit out of time. Um, I I mean, I'd love to go on on and on, but unfortunately, (laughs) um, we don't want to make like a, a five-hour episode, either. Um, although we could have you back another time, that's for sure. Yeah. So uh, yeah, well, my, I mean,
2: whatever is easiest.
1: Yeah. Uh, one of my sort of final questions, I guess, would be: um, What do you suggest, not just for to us here, living in in you know in Europe and and doing uh, social science work, but also to people just around the world that maybe having, you know, a nine to five job, maybe unemployed, maybe, you know, in whatever conditions they may be, what do you, what would be your suggestion to kind of tackle these issues?
2: Hmm. That's a good one. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it's about knowing yourself and where you even stand about a lot of these things, understanding what your politics is and what you care about and why that's, that's kind of the first start is knowing who you are and not just jumping head first into a marketing campaign not just, not just going with the herd, but knowing what matters to you and, and where you want to stand is the, kind of the first step. And then also understanding the political terrains that are going on, you know? And I, and I guess I would suggest if people, a, a good book that came out some years ago that actually really went over critically to like really try to find a criteria of what is kind of working or since the 19, like since 1990 in terms of social struggles and uprisings to develop a criteria of what kind of works despite the inflammatory title, it was Peter Gildelous's, uh what was it? Uh, the Failure of Nonviolence. It came out in 2013, not to confuse right. it with his earlier work, but it actually really reviews and tries to have an honest conversation about what's working in social struggle and how to move it. It's not trying to take any kind of dogmatic position. It definitely comes from a more anarchistic, it comes from an anarchist position for sure, but it's, this will actually help a lot of people to actually understand, I think, to kind of catch up on the last, like, 15 years of kind of What's kind of going on in the streets and what people are talking about but it's and things are changing and it's getting even weirder by the day but uh
1: yeah there's a constant complex of like complexification to to the issue as well right
2: yeah and it's yeah i mean the products are diversifying endlessly at this point but it's uh and but it's yeah know who you are what matters to you and develop good relationships and friends and look, there's so many possibilities. Nothing's impossible in a lot of ways. I mean, we're living in possibility every day in terms of the way and the direction the world has gone. So it's, I think there's a lot of room to do really good things. I think there's a lot of ways for people to organize. And it, it's a lot of it's about people's determination and how much they're willing to work with each other and to support each other through ultimately what are really difficult times, <laughs> whether directly engaged in political struggle or not. And, my, my job is to hopefully try to show kind of the complexities and depth of some of the bad things going on and to raise awareness that the way that renewable en- so-called renewable energy and kind of green green capitalist schemes are being promoted are, are not are not the solutions that they're being marketed as for a variety of different kind of monetary or personal reasons mm-hmm. and yeah I hope that yeah I, I hope to see <laughs> I hope to see things go in a bit of a better direction
1: yeah well, I guess yeah I mean, can't say much more than that. I think we were just constantly hoping, but I guess also acting and, and reflecting, I think the what I would summarize, at least what I've learned from from reading your work has been to, uh, you know, in this granted short period of time, but it's been to kind of uh, be a bit more sort of self critical about, about what I think. And, and I think uh, there's, there's a lot of reflection to be had and not just kind of accepting the states quo or, or what you're being told is the truth. Um I think we have a lot of of searching to do within not just ourselves but um but the world we live in too. Um well I, I think uh, we've unfortunately run out of time a little bit, but um thank you so much, Alexander Dunlap for uh, for coming on.
0: Thank you. It's really interesting.
1: Is there anything that you'd like to finish on uh before we end the podcast?
2: Yeah, I'd like to give a shout out to some of my friends, but maybe even for the one of the last questions is I think that people should really be looking to the people who've kind of been in the fight against a lot of a lot of these kind of mega projects or extractive projects, you know, go for the people on the ground who've been kind of fighting these things for a long time, not the people going to the going to the microphones or are trying to make political careers out of these things, academics included, too. But yeah, I'd like to give a shout out to kind of everyone out there who's kind of trying to make things a little better and who are trying to stop the kind of the spread of kind of social and ecological destruction. And I want to give a special shout out to the kiddies out in Belgium who are, who are fighting the, the Zad Darlo, Darlo. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, everyone else, the, the compas in Mexico who are struggling against wind energy, the people, you know, the people in the Bay de Tamba who are fighting the continuous kind of incursion of, of the mining company, of, Tia Maria project that hasn't stopped and also in the Humbok Forest. I mean everywhere people are fighting and struggling and there's there's ways to to kind of stop this stuff and it's not easy and hopefully I wish everyone the best and I appreciate the time you taking the time to wanna to talk with me and hopefully this was useful and fun on some level
0: yeah yeah i mean it's, it's great to like read something and then actually meet the person like shortly after
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah it's been great thank you so much alexander um honestly i think we've learned a lot and uh, as you say the the struggle goes on and i think after today we're i can safely say that we're a little bit more aware at least of uh, of these struggles so thank you for that